to show the love of Jesus to everyone we meet. Lord, we remember your call. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and Lord, to love our neighbors as ourself. Lord, help us to be good neighbors to those in need. For Lord, you have given so much to us. The joy and peace that we have through the power of the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. The joy we have each day to walk beside you. The confidence we have knowing that you have taken away our sin and we stand right before you. What a great message to share. Lord, help us to share that as we go, not just to our neighbor, but to our community and to our world. And so this morning we come to you, Lord, asking for your presence, your power, your spirit upon us as a country, as a community, and as a church. And this morning, Lord, our ears would be attuned to you, to your message through Pastor Eric and through your word. And we'll praise you for all you do for your marvelous glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. You made it. It's great to see all of you here for this morning of worship. Uh, I'm so glad that you were able to make it here and make it here safely. And just pray that uh, nothing, there wasn't too much damage on the way over. Uh, I barely made it here, actually. My car got stuck. I ended up pushing it myself into the road so that I could come and, and share with you here uh, today. Uh, of course, the weather is uh, a little crazy out there and a little prohibitive, and so it causes us to, to maybe adjust some things in the life of the church. The, today was supposed to be the kickoff uh, or uh, an important day for a couple of major things in the church, or big size things in the church. The first is we were going to be launching our group life here uh, today, and some have done that, but some have not. I got some word from our, some of our leaders, our group leaders that said, eh, I don't think we're going to make it in here today. Um, and so if you uh, have tried to um, uh, attend your group and maybe there was uh, no one inside of it, that's probably what happened. And the, the group leaders will get a hold of you as to what, uh, when uh, the group will start and when the lesson will start and all of that. So just uh, pay attention to that. But the good news is that you have an extra week now to sign up for a group if, if God has really been working on your heart to find a group so you can really journey through life and faith together, to grow together. Um, so if that's, if that's something that God's been working on your heart about and you've been putting it off, maybe that snowstorm was for you so that you could have an extra week to sign up to just be more intentional about growing in life uh, and faith. So um, that's uh, the, the first thing. The second thing is we were uh, supposed to have a congregational meeting this evening with a chili supper at 4.30. And uh, so we're going to push that back a week. We're going to have that next week. So if that's something, members, if you were, were uh, looking forward to that, um, then I want to uh, uh, 
Uh, just let you know that it's going to be pushed back to, to the 27th next week. Uh, same time, same place, uh, 4.30 we'll share in a dinner together. And then just be uh, open to all the different communications that we'll send your way of how we're adjusting for this snowstorm. But, right, it's January. Or as some of my relatives call it, 11 months till Christmas. <laughs> um, I make fun of my mother-in-law especially, but my, my in-laws, they're huge gift givers. And so it's, I, I like to exact, exaggerate that um, I will get, in, in January, February, I get my requ- the request for my Christmas list for the following Christmas. Um, but it really is not, end of July, end, or beginning of August, I'll get a little message from my mother-in-law. Eric, do you have your Christmas list together? This has been such an hard, a hard adjustment for me to make um, because I'm a professional procrastinator and usually it's not until December I can figure out what I actually would even want, much less get you know, as a gift for, for other people. So I've had to learn over the years, I've had to put a system together to, to navigate this. You know, I've been married uh, 11 years, 11 years now. And um, so I've, I've kind of come up with a system. On my phone, I have, you know, the little note feature. And so all year round, if there's something I spot in the store that I actually want, then I'll like write it down in my phone or I'll take a picture of it and I'll store it in there. And so whenever I get that request from my mother, I'm ready. Now, the other thing that has happened over the years is that, you know, I say one thing and it gets misinterpreted and everything. So I I just want to, you know, cut that out, you know, any of the translation issues. So what I do is I'll go on to Amazon and I'll come up with an Amazon wish list. You guys probably use this yourself. And you can just... Click a little button and it goes to your wish list and you can share that wish list with your loved ones that are looking for a, a list. It has come in really handy because the, then they can click on the item, they can see all the specs and then, whether they get that one or something like it, at least they have a better idea of what I want for Christmas. Now I say all of that because it's been on my mind because it's January, I like to make fun of my mother-in-law about this. But I say all of that Because today I want to share with you about our wish lists that we never share. A wish list that we never talk about. This is the second sermon, second message in a series, three-week series is all, of a series called A Glance Across the Room. And Pastor Steve kicked us off last week and talked about how we all tend to compare ourselves with other people. We compare We look at other people and we have certain feelings and emotions uh, surrounding that. And a lot of it, most times, if not all times, that little comparing game that we do, it's damaging for us. And so I want to take us to a new place with that today. And I want to specifically talk about that wish list that we never talk about. And we don't talk about it because it's not for sale. And it doesn't already belong to us. It's really, we can't have it, the thing that we want. And the reason is because it already belongs to somebody else. So today I want to talk about envy. Envy. It's our wish list, the things that we wish for, the things that we want, the things that we desire that belong to other people. Has everything to do with 
comparing that we have with, with one another. I'm actually doing a little digging. It's kind of interesting to look at what envy actually means because a lot of times we confuse envy with jealousy and they're very similar to themselves, um, but actually quite different. Um, I, I love this sociologist that defined it this way. He said, the envious man thinks that he will be able to walk a better walk better if his neighbor breaks a leg. <laughs> and that's funny. But, but we, we take on that, that mentality sometimes. Actually, what I found is that jealousy is defined as the fear that we're going to lose something. The fear that we're going to, to lose something that we have. But envy, envy is the thing that we don't have, but it belongs to somebody else. And we secretly wish for it. We secretly wish for it. Now, it's, it's interesting because I would always mix up those two things. I would think that I would have jealousy for another person if I wanted something that I didn't have. But actually, that's what envy is. That's what makes uh, an envious person. And there's really no clearer warning in, in the Bible about envy than in the Ten Commandments. Now, some of you, most of you, even if you didn't like grow up in church or you're not really a religious person, you probably have heard about the Ten Commandments before. Um, you know, there's debates oftentimes about where the Ten Commandments should be posted in our civic buildings and all of that. But some of you read through this, and maybe it's been a long time, and you read through that, and you're like, oh, I forgot that one was in there. Huh, yeah. So these are the Ten Commandments. And oftentimes we look at these, as sort of these overarching universal morals and values that, that really typify or example all kinds of different scenarios that we would run into. And that is, that is very true if that's the way you look at it. But there's so much more to these Ten Commandments. Most of us see the Ten Commandments by their title, the Ten Commandments, because we see a little title in our, in our Bibles, right? It says the Ten Commandments. But that's not really in the original text, in the original Hebrew. Uh, most of them, very few of us, would, un, would know the Ten Commandments by their scripture reference. Some of you, you know your Bible, and you say Exodus 20, 1 through 7. You say, oh yeah, that's the Ten Commandments. But not all of us would know that. We know it by the Ten Commandments. And we know it by the title, because we know it by the title, it means we often isolate it, kind of see it, by itself, right? We see it listed just like this. In fact, I pull this list right off the internet because you just type in the Ten Commandments and you just get the list right there. But if I said, hey, I want to show you Exodus 20, it gives us a little bit of a different picture because Exodus 20, you know, doesn't start with 20, that there are 19 other chapters in the book of Exodus, which means that something else happened before we get to the Ten Commandments. And I wonder if what happened in those 19 chapters actually shapes and forms how we should understand these Ten Commandments. Most of you know the story. God's, the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt and treated harshly, and they cried out to God for uh, deliverance. God hear, heard their cries, called this fellow Moses to go back into Egypt and to let my people go, if you have Charlton Heston in your mind, right? And so he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, and miracles of God, finally they are released, delivered, not without a little bit of drama through the Red Sea, right? And they are liberated, and they are finally free. But we forget something. 
we forget that they were generational slaves. That all those people knew about their very core identity, all that they knew about the world around them, all that they really understood about life was shaped and formed by slavery. That's all that they knew was to do what they were told to do. And so this idea about being a free person and being a free people, a free nation, was completely foreign to them. And in these 19 chapters, we find these same people wandering through the wilderness on their way to this promised land that God had promised them. And through that wandering process, there's a lot of struggle there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of complaining to God. There's a lot of interaction trying to figure out all of this. It was a messy journey. It was messy because they'd never been free before. They were still trying to figure out who they were as, as individuals and then who they were as a people. This journey, this wandering in the wilderness, wilderness was identity formation as much as anything. But most importantly, it wasn't just about understanding who they were or, or who they were as a nation or a group of people collectively. They were also trying to figure out who God was. They were still learning about who this Yahweh God was and what he cared about and, and, and what his values and, and, and expectations were. So in these 19 chapters, we find these people learning and, and identifying who they really are as a people but more than that, learning how to be God's people. And the Ten Commandments, as these people come to the, the, the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses comes down with these tablets and lists for them these Ten Commandments, they didn't exactly see it in the way that we often see, see it and, and think about them in a very judicial sense. The, those shalls and shalt nots, those do's and those don'ts, the, those high morals and values that we should that we should hold for, for all people of all time. They see it so much more than that, that, that the Ten Commandments were first and foundationally relational commandments. They were, they were commandments that would outline for them what it actually meant to be in covenant with Yahweh God. This is what it looks like to be in relationship with me. And so what you'll find in these Ten Commandments is a separation. The first four outline or specifically relate to God, how, how we are to relate to, to God. Know their gods before me, make no idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath day holy. But then the next six specifically refer to how we are to relate to one another, which is kind of interesting, right? The, the, the entire ten outline how we are to be in relationship with God and somehow relating to one another is directly linked to how we are in covenant with God. So these next, honor your father and mother, <clears throat> kids, shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. And that last one specifically speaks to this topic of, of envy. Actually, in the scripture, it actually goes into more, more detail, especially for the people of that day. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey. And if you are a legalist, you go through that list, you're like, oh, I'm scot-free. I don't, I'm exempt from this because I don't really have the house issue. It might have other envy issues, but not these, so I'm good, right? And what we find in all of the laws is that they do list specific examples for this, uh, for different laws. If you're, if you're harvesting your grain fields, leave the outer edges unharvested so the poor can come by and pick grains of wheat for themselves. And if you're a cattle farmer, you say, I'm free. But these examples provide our illustrations for us to really kind of get the point of what God is aiming at. But in this specific example in the Ten Commandments, just so that there's no confusion, it finally just says, or anything, okay? Or anything that belongs to your neighbor, do not covet. And that word in the Hebrew, covet, could mean jealousy, could mean envy, and it comes from the, the literal word of burning. It has this, this imagery of, of a burning, a burning desire. Do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't do it. And this, included in the Ten Commandments, has everything to do with the outline or the directive of how we are to live in covenant, live in relationship with God. Now, if you go through this list, it's kind of interesting. If you go through all of them here, what you'll find is that the first nine are directly related to actions or behaviors, right? So you might even question that with, with number one, have no gods before me. And I know that we could take that and say, you know, I, I, don't, I shouldn't have anything more important in my life than God. And it speaks to sort of priorities in our hearts. And that's, that's a good interpretation of all that. But, but in that day, you, there was really no confusing it, like putting another God before it, worshiping another God that was sort of a, a behavioral sort of life thing that people would do. So people would know if they're worshiping other gods. And we read about that many times and many occasions in the Old Testament. Okay, so you shall make no idols. Okay, I know we can interpret that as something that we would do in our hearts. But in that day, there were literal idols that people would carve out for themselves because there were other religions in that region that were seeking to influence these people. Okay, take the Lord's name in vain. Well, we all know when that happens. Some of you are laughing. Whoa. Um, Honor your father and your mother. Okay, parents, we know when that happens, right? You shall not murder, self-explanatory, okay? You shall not commit adultery. So all of these are actions and behaviors that, yes, if we do them and we're ashamed of them and we're trying to conceal them, maybe we'll try to hide them away. But they're actions and behaviors, and so when we do them, they're known and, and sort of more, more outward violations of the covenant that's laid out here. But that tenth one is different. The tenth one, we can violate, we can practice, we can do all kinds of, we, we, we can live a covetous life. We can be full of envy and not tell a single soul. Like we can have these wish list 
of, of things that belong to all these other people and we can keep it hidden and concealed and silent. And it makes us think, our brains have this way of tricking ourselves, it makes us think sometimes that we can get away with it or that maybe it's not as important because it's not out there, it's not known. But the longer envy rests in our hearts, the the longer that envy takes up residence with us, the more that we find ourselves wishing and wanting the things and the attitudes and the happiness that other people might have, the more it begins to agitate us and bother us and fester and to grow, we find that while envy starts personal, it never stays private. It will show its ugly face. It will come out in in some form or fashion despite it beginning with that small little glance across the room, that that little comparison that we might have with that other person, that glance at the other person's social media feed that describes how wonderful their life is or their vacation on the beach somewhere, and we think to ourselves, I wish I had that. I wish I had the life that that person lives. Wish I had the house that that person has. I, I wish I had the the job that 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 person has. I wish I had the salary that 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 person has. I wish I had the success that this other person has. I I wish for what they have. It starts personal because we. It begins with this. Uh, this, this dissatisfaction with our own current state. That, that what we are lacking, what we are missing, or maybe even the struggles that we're going through, we just can't deal with that. We're having a hard time managing that. And it begins to bother us so much. That's the beginning part. where It's our own personal heart struggle of what we lack. Dealing with What's missing? Dealing with our shortcomings, our weaknesses. I mean, how many, how many people actually agonize over the house of their dreams that they're living in? Or, or who stays up at night worrying about their full bank account? It's the things that, that we lack, the things that we wish for, that that's what keeps us up at night. It's, a, it's our weaknesses, our struggles, our pains, those are the things that we spend our, our brain power on. Those are the things we drive our energy towards. Those are the things that suck us dry because we're constantly worried about it. It's the things that we're missing, the things that, we're la- that we lack. Those are the things that we are often pay attention to, not the things that we would actually have. And so it starts in that personal way that that we hold and and keep within our hearts. But it always shows its ugly face. Envy will affect the relationships around you. It will. If you can identify envy, I wonder, 
Have you ever remained close to the person you envied? Seems almost impossible, doesn't it? Or maybe you're sensing a separation or a wedge between you and another person and you can't quite put your finger on like what the issue is and maybe you're like, well, our lives are in two different places or man, we're just not clicking anymore. Something's there and you're not close anymore. Maybe that is envy. Maybe that wedge, maybe that thing that's come caused your separation. Maybe it's Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's the thing that's just so hard to identify because it's just sitting there right in ourselves. Psychologists will name three different types of envy, and two of them are a little bit more easier to identify. The first is the malicious envy. And we know this, right? When people seek sort of revenge or vendetta against someone else, and you just think, why, why are they doing this? Why are they treating this person in this way? We, we can identify that a lot easier. The second one's a little bit trickier. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's something you can identify with. It's called emulative envy. It's like we see something that we want in someone else, and so we find ourselves like mirroring that person, like mimicking that person, or trying to take on the same characteristics and behaviors as that other person. But the, 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 the third one is the hardest, the most hidden, the most difficult to identify, the benign envy. Because it hasn't quite yet shown its face. It hasn't quite yet manifested into some kind of deliberate action. And if you're like me, you say to yourself, well, as long as it doesn't get to that point, then I don't have a problem. And yet, here we have the 10th of the 10 commandments. Do not covet anything that your neighbor has. Um, I had a friend in uh, seminary that I really connected with. Uh, we had somewhat similar stories to tell and um, really, uh, I think our, our thoughts and beliefs really lined up correctly, just lined up and we just uh, really connected over a lot of different things. And we tried to reconnect uh, recently, uh, a few years ago, tried to reconnect, and I happened to be, at the time, I wasn't here, at the time I was just in a really difficult place, really struggling in my call as a, as a pastor and really struggling in, in how, to, how to navigate um, feelings of dissatisfaction and doubt and, and all kinds of different things. I was struggling. And I, tried, I reconnected with this other friend, but his pathway was a lot different than mine. Like he got out of seminary and he uh, was identified as an up-and-coming young pastor and leader and he was uh, put into a specific exclusive training program and uh, had a, a really flourishing internship and then, uh, then was able to take a position at a really bustling suburb and, and uh, a really healthy congregation and things were just booming and successful and things were just Great. <laughs> and we sat down for, for lunch, and it was very clear that we were on different trajectories. <laughs> and here I was just struggling and agonizing over my situation, and here he was, just full of contentment and kind of basking in his own success. 
and I didn't recognize anything that was going on between us at the time. I just remember getting really agitated with him when he offered to buy lunch. I didn't even realize at the time that I was agitated, but I was thinking to myself, the audacity that he would rub all of his success in my face and offer to pay for, pay for lunch. <laughs> and I just said, well, you know, we're in different places and sort of, I sort of let it go, not even realizing until I look back now. You know, I was envious. I had envy towards this person because I was having such a hard time in dealing with my own lack of success and struggling in my own context, and I could not celebrate with this brother of mine at his. Instead, I had envy for him. You know, sometimes it's hard to detect those wedges in our own relationships and name it for what it might be, which is envy. In James, James' pastoral letter to uh, congregations and he's addressing this and, and I love the questions that he asks. He says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Where do they come from? It's a good question, isn't it? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. Tough saying of Jesus. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. What James is saying here is that you have all of these wants and wishes and desires and you might have even brought it to the Lord. You might have even asked God, God, I, I want to have these things, but you haven't had them. And so you have quarrels and, and disputes with your other sisters and brothers. But you don't have those things because you haven't asked. And if you have asked, you haven't asked in the right way. What he's driving at is something that I have experienced so many times looking back now. When I have asked God for something and have not received what I asked God for, and my conclusion is that God is letting me down. That God is the one not following through, not fulfilling wishes. And I often, nearly all the time, don't consider that maybe God's no to me is in my own best interest, out of my own sense of protection. That God's saying no or not right now or just, just wait a second. Maybe if God's saying that to me, that he has something better in mind. And it's so hard to, to consider in the moment, but looking back, well, I wonder how many wish lists have I brought to God? <laughs> how many wish lists have I, have I brought to God and um, just don't even consider 
that if God says no or, or not yet, that, that he's actually thinking about my own best interest? See, the difference is a, a heart in the midst of our wish list, a heart that begins with, with a, a, a posture of our hearts that just says, Lord, you know, not, not what I want ultimately, but, but what you want. Hear my request, Lord, but, but ultimately not what I want, but what you want. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It was in the garden when Jesus had asked that maybe he wouldn't have to die on the cross for the sins of the world. But followed it up with, but not my will. Yours be done. I wonder if there is a satisfaction to be gained simply abiding or or being or resting in the very presence of, that God offers us for free. That despite having wishes and wants and and desires for something that we currently don't have, that the state that we really are in right now is actually enough because God is there and God has given it and it's just simply enough. And that's so hard, I realize, because some of us are going through very serious difficulties and problems and are facing all kinds of trials And yet I wonder, in the midst of all of that, could we still come to that place to say, God, in you, I have no wants. That was the prayer of David in the famous Psalm, Psalm 23. Many of you have it memorized. You've heard it before. It simply starts with this verse, the Lord is my shepherd. What an image, right? The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. I shall not want. I wonder if that could be your prayer today. I want to offer you a a small time of reflection uh, for you to offload your wish lists, to press the clear button, And to offload all of our wishes, all of our desires, and to give them to God and replace them with one single declaration. Lord, you are my shepherd, I shall not want. Lord, in your presence, I have no other desires. Lord, in you, I need nothing else. And it doesn't mean that we should be guilty for for having wishes and desires. I mean, we... You know, Jesus does say, ask, but to ultimately offload those, those wish lists and just say, for right now, in this moment, Lord, in you, I shall not want. Take some time. Maybe uh, for you, it looks like confession. Maybe you're like me and you spend the bulk of your time praying for what you want rather than just simply saying, "In God, in you, I shall not want. Or, or maybe it's just unloading those wish lists and simply allowing yourself to rest in the presence of the Lord. Take a moment as we, as we sing together.
and simply be, simply abide. you to stand and as we have lifted up a prayer perhaps now make it a declaration 
uh, and read with me out loud uh, Psalm 23, the Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, forever. Amen. Amen. Um, as you go, I, I do pray that you would consider how God is calling you to grow deeper in your faith and your walk and your relationship with him. And we have all kinds of different opportunities for, for you to check out. So I do invite you to do that and, and ask that you, uh, for members, to remember that our, our uh, meeting is going to be moved to the next uh, week.